Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And I'm Alex Cormier. Alex, I have a question for you. Okay. Let's say you are traversing some sort of labyrinthine area. It's wintertime. There's snow. You're following a set of footprints. Not so unlike Theseus in the labyrinth of the Minotaur, yes? The footprints stop, but the person you are chasing you have not found. My question to you is this. Do you assume that they've flown away? (laughs) Or do you take two seconds and think about what actually happened here? (laughs) <laughs> probably the latter. I'd probably take take a little second and think think it over. Or I I mean in the position I'm in now, I definitely assume they've gone backwards. Yeah. Although I think that would be very hard to do convincingly. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know? Like just executing that backwards walk in the snow. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without leaving a double print and right. then when Danny hops off the track, mm-hmm. he kind of ruffles the snow with his hand and it's like that doesn't work, <laughs> you know. That looks very different than freshly fallen snow. Yeah. So. Today's episode we're doing the 1980 film The Shining directed by Stanley Kubrick and based on a novel by Stephen King. And I know that this is such a I know Jack's crazy at this point in the movie, and I know that it's like more aesthetic than exactly narrative for this like escape by Danny. But for some reason, when I watched it this time, I just couldn't get over how fucking stupid Jack was <laughs> at that point. It's like, what what do you think happened here, Jack? Is the footprints stop and you just run where there aren't footprints now? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a number of things that happen around that point in the movie. What bothers me more is that he seems to get to a a state of hypothermia in like 15 minutes of being in cold weather with Mm -hmm. just a sweater on, you know, so. Yeah, I think we have to take that ending scene a little bit more metaphorically. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Right? But uh, And we'll get to that because I think that there is an interesting parallel there to Theseus and his battle of in the labyrinth against the Minotaur from Greek myth, especially with Danny's footprints being his thread that Theseus uses to get out. So welcome, Alex, to what is actually going to be episode 80 of Really True Fiction, a milestone one. Thanks very much. I love what you've done with the place. <laughs> Looks beautiful. <laughs> That's right. Now, about a month ago at time of recording, I put out a kind of Really True Fiction mini-sode, kind of updating the listeners of why there weren't as many episodes of Really True Fiction anymore. And part of it, and it's, you know, to recap that, it's just because David and I don't live in the same building anymore, and our schedules make it trickier. So one of the things that we have both decided to do is that I will, when I can, have just a third-party guest on, or maybe two sometimes, to talk about a movie or book or whatever Um, when he can't make it. And so this is the inaugural of that. So welcome to 
this cherry popping. I'll say. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> well, we're not on the radio anymore. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good to be here. That I, I feel a little bit gross thinking of being on the cherry popping episode, but I'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's probably grosser things we can talk about today. That's true. Uh, so this is the first time you've appeared on Really True Fiction, but you have also you have been a guest on my other podcast, The Liberal Soul, where we talk about movies. Just yes, more which, generically, which I noticed you access through the same feed, at least on the Apple Podcast app. So. Uh, yes, you can. The first twenty episodes of the Liberal Soul I made available on the Really True Fiction feed. Oh, I see. I'm up to thirty three episodes now, at, at least at the time of recording on Liberal Soul, and so the the last thirteen episodes you can't access through the Really True Fiction, but the first twenty because I wanted to like let listeners to this podcast know about my other one right that kind of thing so yes it's actually available on both that's i believe it was episode 18 or maybe 19 i don't know one of those ones <laughs> yeah but more thoroughly than that for anyone who doesn't know alex and i do a weekly radio show on local radio in nelson bc called kootenai co-op radio called full spectrum cinema i'll include a link to that mix cloud in the show notes of this episode so if you if you enjoy today's episode and you think alex and i have pretty good repartee which uh i do <laughs> you can access all of our you know we're probably up to about 40 or so maybe almost 40 full spectrum cinema episodes right i would think so i have not been keeping track but yeah there's mm-hmm. a lot of hours of us talking about films together so yeah so this is a pretty like seamless invitation i would say on my part to have you come and talk about the shining and the reason the shining happens to be the film we're talking about is not out of any like great predilection on either of our parts per se but because my third podcast that i guest host on called nothing to fear our hundredth episode is on the shining so i actually talked about it for that podcast and i thought oh you know get Uh, To quote the great Canadian philosopher Ricky from Trailer Park Boys, get two birds stoned at once. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Right? But obviously we talk about film and great film and The Shining. Even if you don't love it, like you can, it's kind of undeniably a cultural staple in the history of both film and horror films. And uh, Stanley Kubrick has his fingerprints all over it. So that's kind of like the backdrop of why. Uh, The Shining is the movie we're talking about today for episode 80 of Really True Fiction, and um, just thanks for coming on. Yeah, no, glad to be here. Um, The Shining is one, it's not like a film that I would think to pick for what we do on the radio, partly because uh, people may have noticed, but there is quite a wealth of um, content on The Shining that's available online. You know, it's been talked about quite a Quite a bit. Yeah, it's kind of uh, like talking about Game of Thrones yeah. or even Star Wars. <laughs> For sure. And and there's some people who have covered it like very comprehensively. Mm-hmm. But it's There's a second movie about it. Yeah, no, exactly. Right? That documentary, I think, Room 237. Well, a second great movie. Right. You know. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, certainly not nearly as good as The Shining, but that documentary is amazing. So, mm-hmm. anyways, I like that with this podcast, there's a sort of a particular angle for mm-hmm. exploring yeah. it because it has been talked about comprehensively. But I mean, it's The Shining. I love watching it. So I'm really stoked to talk about well, it. Well, and it's one of those movies that's like a, a node for so many other movies. Or like how many Simpsons Treehouse of Horror gags are Shining related? Certainly a few. Yeah. I think that line here is Johnny. I think I read it's like in the top 20 
of the AFI's most famous movie lines or something like that. Yeah, and I have to say I don't really understand that line. Is that a reference to something? Like why? Probably. (laughs) Yeah. I think I read somewhere that Jack Nicholson ad-libbed it. Okay. Which apparently is not actually easy to get away with in a Kubrick film. <laughs> so No, no. <laughs> so I think it must all. have worked or at some level. Yes. No, it's it's so iconic. It's like it's mm-hmm. monumental really. And I think that I mean, for me at least, the majority of good horror films are ghost stories. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is probably the number one, you know, it mm-hmm. is like the the pinnacle of that well it was certainly like a harbinger of what this kind of story could be yes because now as of recording this movie's 42 years old and watching it now there is some out of timeness i feel like okay this is starting to feel maybe a little dated some Mm. of the things in it but remarkably less so than most films from 1980 i would surmise yeah right so that's kind of an interesting part of like how and and clearly how influential it's been you know it's kind of like i I like the shining i think i thought i liked it more than i actually do okay (laughs) when i watched it but i've made this comparison on other podcasts before but i think it's still useful to me the shining is reminiscent of something like um sigmund freud in psychology where now much of freud is laughed at and rightly so but like his influence in the field is undeniable. And all of the things that Freud got right and did well are so integrated into our language now that we don't even remember that it's from him. Mm. In this analogy, The Shining is better than Freud in its lasting impact, but in a similar way where it's like, this is just one of those films that like you can see other films are um, paying homage to like all the, there's just, this film is so innovative in, in so many ways, I think. Yeah, for me, it's I, I talked about this on our when I was on your other podcast, but Kubrick was my doorway into right. taking cinema seriously, mm-hmm. and I do think that he is one of the great, one of the great artists of all time, really. And I do think that this is one of one of his better films. So I do love the film, but I find it to be very difficult watch for me like Mm -hmm. it's not difficult in that the second that it comes on i cannot stop watching Mm -hmm. it completely sucks me into a place that i don't really want to be and and i actually (laughs) um it gets under my skin in a way that many horror movies don't like for instance i watched this this week and the night of i went to bed and was fine and didn't really think about it Mm -hmm. and then the next night i went to sleep and all of the images came up and I was genuinely like freaked out laying alone in my bed that night Mm -hmm. thinking about The Shining. So that was, you know, (laughs) over 24 hours later that it kind of, it's like the the images just kind of linger in your mind long after the movie finishes. For sure. I mean, I think if I want to drink any red rum, it better be with food coloring, (laughs) right? (laughs) What what holiday would that be celebrating? Yeah. Christmas? (laughs) Well, and speaking of dated things, I mean, I think that that red rum thing feels like maybe the most gimmicky part of the film to me, Mm. where it's watching it this time, I was like, that feels like something from sort of a cheaper movie than this, but... Yeah, I mean, it it feels so totally made so that there could be... (laughs) another among dozens of mirror motifs right (laughs) like so many mirrors in this film and and importantly so but like at that point in the film when the movie's almost over it's like 
just in case you motherfuckers don't get it, this movie's about mirrors and reflection, too. Right. <laughs> right? It's like, oh, my gosh. And it's like, okay, Wendy, you've never read a word backwards before? Like, you couldn't yeah. see that just on the door? It's sure. ridiculous. Anyway, I thought that was funny. So, before we get into the meat of this film, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who listens to Really True Fiction. Uh, you can find the podcast on all the major podcasting apps that you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, we're on Amazon Music. Um, if you're a listener in India, you can find us on Ghana. <laughs> so that's pretty good. Uh, by the by, apropos of nothing, and maybe I've even talked about this on here before, our most downloaded episode in India is episode six, which is on the film Michael Clayton with George Clooney. Which Love is a that movie. great movie. But I was like, why is this movie so popular in India? And it's so stupid that it, it took me like several months to realize it's because the title I put of that is I am Shiva, the god of death, <laughs> which is obviously Shiva's um, Hindu god. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, of course. <laughs> like, uh, there's a lot of Hinduism in India, it turns out. So <laughs> I was like, ah, okay, that makes sense now. But yeah, Ghana, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate a rating or a review because that's a really good way to help new people find the show. If you want to get in contact with me or David, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. And we have a Facebook group that you can join and I post when there's new episodes there as well. As well as uh, in the spirit of today's episode, feel free to listen to Full Spectrum Cinema on Kootenai Co-op Radio 93.5 FM, Nelson, BC, if you're in the area. Uh, you can also listen online. So you can find the website of Kootenai Co-op Radio. And our show is on 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, Tuesday afternoons. And as well, I will post, again, the link for the Mixcloud where all the episodes are there. That'll be pretty fun. Okay. For the handful of people listening who've never seen The Shining, I'll just do a quick plot rundown. Basically, Jack Torrance, I believe is his last name, played by Jack Nicholson, takes a job at the Overlook Hotel in i think colorado it's supposed to be in in the film right yeah and uh he's going to be the kind of out of season caretaker with his wife and his son so there's like not gonna it's this massive hotel nobody's gonna be there throughout the winter months and they're gonna like take care of the place and as the movie goes on we learn that uh this dick halloran character and danny share a kind of telephonetic way of communication that Dick calls The Shining, which I think is probably explored a little bit more in the novel than it is in a movie. That would be my guess, having ever read the novel. And as the weeks pass at this Overlook Hotel, Jack kind of slowly and then all at once loses his mind and starts, I think, hallucinating, although I guess it's not exactly clear if it's a hallucination or a delusion. Mm -hmm. And Wendy, his wife, starts becoming more afraid of him. Erstwhile, their son Danny has this imaginary friend called Tony that we're supposed to, I guess, believe is connected to The Shining somehow and can like interpret more metaphysical realities going on around him, a la ghosts, because Danny starts to see ghosts of murders that have happened previous in this hotel. And the grand... What's that word in French? Do you know what I Denouement. mean? Denouement. Denouement. Thank yeah. you. Uh, the great climax of the film is that scene in the hedge maze behind the Overlook Hotel where Danny very uh, intrepidly escapes from his 
insane and also a non-thoughtful father who very quickly <laughs> freezes to death. If you've ever seen The Shining, you will understand how underrepresentative of the film that little description is, but that is kind of mostly what happens in this movie. Sure. Definitely watch The Shining. If you've never seen The Shining, do yourself a favor and watch it. Pause now and then come back and listen afterwards, right? Yes. So before we get into like the most I think, uh, obvious, really true fiction elements. How old were you the first time you saw this film? Uh, I'm going to say it was probably like 11 or 12, somewhere around there. Okay. I used to have a lot of sleepovers at my my friend's house, and uh, that was where many a horror movie was watched in my childhood. And so I'm pretty certain I watched it there. And this is one of like... One of a handful of movies, because I I was quite into horror as a kid, Mm -hmm. that gave me nightmares or made it difficult for me to go to sleep at night, you know, when I was past the age of six or seven or whatever. Mm. So, yeah, I think that I actually saw this one before I was really doing my deep dive into Stanley Kubrick. Mm. He was the first kind of director who I... He was the person who made me aware of who directors were. Mm -hmm. But I think that this film, I was interested in it as a famous horror movie, a classic of the horror genre, not really as a Stanley Kubrick film, Mm. and then came back to it years later. How about you? Yeah, I actually don't remember the first time I saw it, but it was probably in my early 20s. And again, it was a movie I felt like I knew a bunch about because of how, like, there's reference to it in Simpsons and South Park and like lots of other movies. I, I can't remember what movie it was, but it's like there's some movie I remember from growing up where there's like a line is like, oh, you're going to go full Jack Torrance on us, hey? Mm. Like when it's someone losing their mind and like just a reference like that, which is like obviously a movie thought that it didn't need to have any more context than that for the audience to understand what it was talking about, right? So. I think that's interesting when movies do that about other movies. So I actually don't have like a strong memory from the first time I watched it. I'm watching it this time. And this might be like a a side effect of the fact that I watch a horror movie weekly at this point in time for that podcast. But I just found it not very scary. Mm. And I do think that's because I'm saturated in horror films. But we've done a lot of ghost or supernatural type films um, in the last year and a half of nothing to fear and this one is i think creepy and really well made and really cinematic but i just think that the horror genre conventions have progressed really far in terms of how they impress themselves on your emotions when you watch it so that i felt a little bit underwhelmed of the scares in Mm. the shining but still really interested in the themes if that makes sense Yeah, I mean, for me, there are several scenes in this film that I find extremely scary or unnerving Mm. that really get under my skin. And then the rest of it, not so much. And I always, when I had watched it previously, I think that I had always found like the supernatural stuff to be the scary stuff. Mm. And then I found that once you had Jack Nicholson running around with an axe, it was not so scary and I still find that <laughs> to be true actually but mm-hmm. I do I do find the non supernatural elements in it more interesting now than I did when I was younger watching it 
Well, and infamously, there was a, a pretty strong schism when the movie came out between Stephen King, the writer of the novel that the movie's based on, and Stanley Kubrick. Like you mentioned at the beginning, how much this movie's talked about, that's certainly well documented, their disagreements of... I found out, though, that I didn't know this, that Stephen King really didn't want Jack Nicholson cast as Jack Torrance because... I think five years before this movie, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest had come out. Have you ever read The Shining, the novel? No. No, neither have I. But apparently in that novel, King contests that it's supposed to be more of a surprise that Jack Torrance loses his mind. The unraveling is supposed to be a little bit more subtle, and you're not supposed to see it coming exactly, although, you know, it's a Stephen King book. But maybe by that point, it's he's not quite as renowned yet, and, and you know, you're not going to see that coming as much let's say but he was afraid that since jack nicholson had just been in this like huge hit about someone in a psychiatric hospital that the audience of the shining was going to associate him as someone who's going to lose his mind so he actually campaigned for a more straight-laced type of actor like i think he said he wanted martin sheen or john voight to play jack torrance so like i can see that certainly even just Jack Nicholson's hair. <laughs> this guy's a little bit more unhinged, maybe. So I can see why that would annoy someone like Stephen King. Infamously, there was a schism at the start between the director and the writer of the novel. Yeah, well, to me, that whole story is interesting because basically Stanley Kubrick, he was not into horror movies. He was not into Stephen King. He, w- mm-hmm. But he was getting into sort of gothic ghost tales. And so... My understanding from the research that I've done is that he basically picked up The Shining um, because the rights were available. Mm -hmm. And he saw, like, I could chisel away at this thing and mold it into a movie that I would be interested in making. Mm -hmm. He was never interested in making the book. No. I mean, if Stephen King knew anything about Stanley Kubrick, that would have been really obvious from from the get-go. Yeah. I also just think it's like, so Stephen King, why don't you go and check out some of the adaptations of your work into film? Are you sure that The Shining is the one you're going to want to complain about? Because there's, (laughs) there are a few, there's a few okay ones, but the track record is not great. And I mean, I think a lot of those cheesier and less acclaimed ones actually came after The Shining and and have probably actually contributed to a more I don't think it's at the point where Stephen King like is happy with The Shining but he I read that he's come around more to seeing its merit okay in you know 2022 he's certainly not as hard on it as he was when it came out in 1980 and he sees its its um, contribution to culture I think also Probably made him a buttload of money. Yes, yeah, definitely, well, so definitely. That never hurts. Um, before we actually like talk about the characters, I want to make one other point about Stephen King. Is that this is the second Stephen King adaptation or or, or story um, on this podcast? I think it was episode sixty four or something like that. David and I had my friend Billy on to talk about the stand. We talked about the no- his novel, The Stand. But I've done many of those subpar movies on nothing to fear so i i've for a recorded podcast this is probably my like ninth or tenth stephen king something or other right and by far and away in my opinion the the strength of stephen king is not his supernatural monsters it's his human monsters Mm. in it pennywise is in the new movies he's really stylized well to be scary but to me the scariest people in it are like bev's dad 
who's like molesting her and abusing her, right? Or in a less aggressive way, but still quite traumatically damaging way, Eddie's mom, who babies him to the point where he can't handle the world and he's a germaphobe and like he's just neurotic to the point of being able to not even function, that kind of thing. In my opinion, I don't know, I'd say maybe the best Stephen King adaptation I've ever seen is HBO did a like a maybe eight or ten episode on the book The Outsider. The supernatural monster in that is this entity that takes the shape of people in a town and then uh, feeds on children, like eats children to stay alive, but then the person that he looks like is the one that gets blamed for it, obviously, because he can take on the appearance of people. And yet in that show, it's one of the deepest and most heart-wrenching things I've ever seen about grief. And the mm. grief that the main character and his wife feel because I think their child had died earlier in their life. So anyway, that's a lot of like wind to point out that I think kind of ironically, maybe the fact that Kubrick made The Shining more about Jack's psychology than a ghost story actually accentuates the strongest part of Stephen King, which is these very, very human problems and monsters that exist in the world uh, with this kind of overlay and sheen of some supernaturalism going on as well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And so I think St- Stephen King is kind of like not even looking a gift horse in the mouth, but like actually biting his own hand if he doesn't like the way The Shining was told. Yeah. If he wanted more supernaturalism, because in my humble opinion, that's actually Stephen King is very average writing Mm. about supernatural monsters. And he's a genius writing about human ones. Mm, Interesting. So anyway, that's a good segue, though, to the main human monstrosity of this film to me, which is abusive and negligent parents. (laughs) Accidentally, because I didn't think about this when I mentioned it to you, but you happen to be a parent. So I feel like it probably struck you even more than it would have me, someone who doesn't have children, right? So I have a few notes on the parenting aspect, but I just want to open it up to you to like riff on whatever take you had on the parenting angle of Jack and Wendy in this movie. Yeah, no, it's interesting that you use abusive plural for both parents because I I wouldn't necessarily think of Wendy as being abusive, but I'd be I'd be interested to hear more of your thoughts on that. But that was definitely one of the big things that influenced this watch was that this is my first time seeing it as a parent. Mm-hmm. And my son is about eight, so it's been uh, a while. About Danny's age in the movie though. He is, yeah. yeah. He's he's quite close. And so and I I felt that Danny was was quite a realistic eight-year-old although very well behaved for in in my experience hey i've worked with a lot of eight-year-olds at my job throughout the years and like one out of every 20 is really well behaved so it's not impossible it's just implausible sure (laughs) i wish i would have had that one anyways (laughs) so like i was saying i mean when i was younger i've i'd also heard discussion of the shining and people would talk about Jack being abusive and his alcoholism and whatnot. And I always, I didn't really remember that as being at the forefront of the movie. Mm. And it doesn't get like mentioned a whole lot, but it, it does it at very crucial moments. So yeah. Very contextual for the film. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that that's Mm -hmm. definitely setting the scene. And so um, Jack, he's disturbing long before he, 
becomes disturbed, mm. you know, because even yeah, though that's a good way to put it. the way that Wendy introduces him is that he there was this violent incident that happened with Danny where Jack, while he was drunk, dislocated his shoulder and then basically swore off alcohol the next day and it's been five months. So he's kind of pulled himself together for his family. But it's brilliant casting, too, of Jack Nicholson in every way. But he always had this kind of um, smarmy, ironic quality to him. <laughs> yeah, which just was like base sarcasm. <laughs> totally. Which was edgy but charming often. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it had a sort of charm and an unpredictability to him. And in this, I, I just think it's genius that Stanley Kubrick was able to see that and see I could take that and push it to an extreme where it becomes something very different. So his like smarmy sarcasm in this at the beginning when he's still somewhat sane just comes across as this totally callous disregard for his family. I mean, he tries to be somewhat loving at times, but he he just seems so annoyed by the presence of of his mm-hmm. family right from one the more get-go. obstacle. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, I guess those would be my opening thoughts, but it, mm-hmm. obviously it develops a lot as we get into the film. Yeah, I think maybe the part of Wendy that I find not abusive of Danny, she's certainly not abusive of Danny, but I think I would say she's insufficiently defensive of him Yeah, against Jack. So, like, kind of negligent and kind of um, self-deceiving about the nature of the marriage that she's in and the nature of Jack and the danger that he poses to both her and Danny. And like, that's not unique to Wendy, right? Like that's one of the tragedies of much of domestic abuse Mm. is that kind of, it's not Stockholm syndrome exactly, but it's like, it is something like excuse making for real, like on the one end of the spectrum, the best you can say about Jack is he's antisocial in his behavior and his alcoholism. But really, he like is physically abusive to Danny because of that alcoholism. And I found Wendy's energy went into saying everything was okay and everything's improving as opposed to looking the much more dark and stark nature of reality in the face and doing something about it mm-hmm. kind of thing. And so it's not the same, I think, a intelligent person can think in continuums and not categories. Jack is the villain of this film, soup to nuts. There's no doubt about that. But I noted about Wendy is that there is a villainy to being insufficiently defensive of weak and innocent and people who can't defend themselves. And children are the prime example of that in the world. But my dad also, for much of my life, worked with people with mental disabilities. And like, you have to defend those people too in in a way that they can't defend themselves and if you are insufficiently if you're insufficient in those duties a lot of harm can come because of that mm-hmm. so the most concise way to put it is that almost all of jack's vices and immoralities are acts of commission and wendy's are acts of omission yeah and i think acts of commission are visceral and thus strike us as worse and jack definitely is worse but acts of omission are a little harder to put your finger on, but can also do a lot of damage. Right. So that's where I saw Wendy's failings, 
but she does have redemptive features too by you know she does save him danny like danny would have died probably if wendy hadn't got him out that window kind of thing so yeah i mean that's definitely wendy's intro when she is talking to the I don't know if it's a child psychologist or something of that nature. Because of Danny's um, imaginary friend, Tony. Yeah, and his fainting episode. Mm, yeah, um, that's right. But she she really glosses over the incident. I mean, it's kind of... She doesn't volunteer any of that information, but when she does give it, it's it's very glossed over, and it was it's, it's a harmless accident and that sort of thing. One thing that I find watching this, which is kind of... It's kind of rough to admit to, but mm. I I find Wendy to be so meek and spineless mm. that there is something that's extremely irritating about her character, mm-hmm. even though she, she is n- never anything but sort of syrupy sweet mm-hmm. until she is... Running for her life. Yeah, or um, swinging around a baseball bat. But even the way she does that is kind of ineffectual. But Well, and we, you know, many other podcasts will have talked about the abuse she experienced behind the scenes by Kubrick. Oh, yeah. For a lot of her scenes, right? Absolutely, yeah. So there's a part of you, or there's a part of me anyways, that when I watch this, I feel... A bit of what Jack would be feeling, I think, where I'm just like, why can't you just stick up for yourself and like raise your voice or something mm-hmm. to this guy? That's a tough, a tough thing to say, but it's definitely something that I feel when I watch it. Well, I think that that's why this movie is actually a super sophisticated take on different kinds of bad parents. Mm. There's a kind of willful naivete to Wendy that is not doing Danny any favors. Now, again, I I can't reiterate this enough. Jack is the villain, not Wendy. Wendy is a victim of Jack. But she represents a kind of weakness of will that is going to leave people in your care vulnerable if you can't stand up for them. Yeah. And Danny is vulnerable because of that syrupiness and that meekness that Wendy... like. Wendy is so self-deceiving. Interestingly, the movie maybe says Jack is too in a more kind of like ghost way. (laughs) And Wendy's is more metaphorical. But, you know, for any rational person, there are 101 signs that Jack is losing it before he loses it. Like, as you say, he's disturbing before he's disturbed. Just how they talk to each other, even in like their first tour together of the overlook hotel i'm like this is this is not a couple that's working well right (laughs) like it'd be interesting to know why wendy is so self-deceiving like what is the reason the movie can't give us enough to know that i think yeah just that she is and that kind of inability to protect danny can be very can be a huge liability too in a more kind of reality-based sense like negligence is part of the penal code Mm. as well as sure assault let's say right especially with children and i think she's negligent to a degree because of her (sighs) i don't know i don't know exactly what it is and i think that that's part of that's like the part of stephen king meeting hp lovecraft it's like we kind of don't know why right right like it's like the weird esoteric nature of human of humans sometimes So I wanted to touch on what you were talking about with the self-deception of Wendy, because Mm. I think that this is this is a family dynamic that we see a lot in the 
in the film. Mm. And it's it seems like it is well into the we're approaching three quarter mark of the film before anyone says anything about the Overlook Hotel. But like this place is great. Like mm. we love it. They're constantly like Danny's like, Dad, do you like it here? And he's <laughs> like, it's great. I love it. And don't you? And he's like. I guess so. And, and Wendy's like, oh, it's it's so great. I love it. Like, they're constantly mm-hmm. deceiving themselves and, and saying how great this place is, even as they're clearly all hating it. But there's mm-hmm. kind of a like a hierarchy of self-deception in the family, because mm-hmm. I would That's say yeah. Jack is by far the most self. He, uh, he is the only one who I don't think ever gets to a place of like, I don't like it here. And very importantly... And this is a to me like a a bedrock philosophical distinction mm-hmm. is that he's violently self deceptive. True. Right. Wendy is passively self deceptive, but in his in Jack's self deception, and this is why he's worse. He's actually violent in it too. Yeah. He. I think he's the only one who never gets to a place of. I think that this environment might be having a negative impact on me. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he, he, and then you know Wendy has less self awareness, and then. Um, Danny, it, he's still kind of getting trained in how to understand be, an environment. Yeah, exactly. So he he has the most awareness of what's going on mm. around them, I would argue, you know. Yeah. And I mean, that is a bit of a trope in horror movies, too. I wonder if The Shining started that. I mean, there's probably no, I guess like I guess The Omen was before this. There's horror movies with yeah. kids before this, but Danny's presence as this kind of like almost like Danny asks questions similar to how a good scientist would ask questions about a situation like what about this do we think about that like he's a good critical thinker even though we wouldn't classify him per se because he's curious about what is just the default for the adults around him Mm, sure yeah what's interesting about Danny though too like you mentioned the omen typically you have like innocent kid or creepy kid in a horror movie (laughs) this is maybe the first where they're combined yeah that's a good point yeah Um, i hadn't thought about that yeah Mm -hmm. because when he goes full tony danny's pretty fucking creepy well and again we talked about mirrors that's a really good reflection of how that's happening to his dad yeah in a in a more violent and and sadistic way Right. One thing that this is maybe going off on a tangent, but one thing that's perfectly well permitted on this. podcast. <laughs> okay. One thing I in some like supplemental features that I was watching that they were mentioning is that it's possible that Jack to think of Jack as having the shining as well, oh, okay. that, that that if it's like hereditary, that that mm. would be the parent who Danny's getting it from, mm-hmm. but that Jack has no training or awareness of it because he's definitely like Jack and Danny are both tapping into the kind of supernatural element of mm-hmm. the Overlook, whereas Wendy doesn't notice it at all until a little bit towards the end. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It, yeah, I think the movie, I think Kubrick gives us a lot to play with without answering those kind of questions. Totally. Which is kind of, I can't tell you the amount of candle and wax I've burnt 
trying to figure out 2001 a space odyssey this is a riff on on a, on a different quotation but it's like for me when you watch when you talk about 2001 a space odyssey you could have like two people three opinions that kind of thing right like it's such sure. a rorschach type of a movie and for a lot of people that's just annoying now for me my temperament i love it but yeah with jack like th- like this whole movie th- so much of the shining is teasing the idea of like is Jack the caretaker from the 1920s as well? Has he been here this whole time? What would it mean for him to be here this whole time? Is it a metaphysical fact that he's been there or is it a metaphorical fact that he's been there, right? And like, I'm not going to give you the answer to that yeah. kind of thing. And I think that that's part of Kubrick's je ne sais quoi. Yeah. I think that's something he does so well. Like recently, maybe a couple months ago, I watched Eyes Wide Shut for the first time in forever. Mm-hmm. And like... <laughs> One of the most logical questions you could ask at the end of that movie is like, who the fuck are these people that have this party that he goes to? That's not really answered. It's just that some people we know from the movie go to those parties. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, I want to know more, but we don't learn anything. Yeah. You know? And I think that that is just so good of a storytelling mechanism that most filmmakers can't pull off. Yeah, because nothing ever, nothing... I I feel nothing ever feels half baked in a, in a Kubrick movie. No, like it feels meticulously thought out and planned. So what is left out is never, for me at least, unsatisfying. No, no, um, exactly. Yeah, like whether I mean, the idea that he has always been the caretaker at the Overlook Hotel. Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly how that make sense in a nuts and bolts way but it feels right when i'm watching the movie it may it, it makes a certain kind of sense mm-hmm. i guess you mm-hmm. know yeah and the tone of the film lends to that plot beat by the end so uh i feel a little guilty right now because i, I feel like i've railed on wendy even though she's the actual protective parent all things considered in this film so I think we should take a few shots at Jack here. Yes, he's also self-deceptive. There's a line early in the movie. I think it's when he's talking to, uh, what's the manager's name? Stu something? Anyway, yeah. you know who I'm talking about, right? The I character do. he's talking about. The guy asks him, oh, you have a wife and son. Are they going to have a good time here? And he's like, yeah, they'll love it here. And it's like, mm-hmm. really? Are you sure? <laughs> like, well, You don't seem like the most reliable person even at this point in the movie. Are you just saying that? And if you're just saying that, you don't give a shit about them. Like, I think that that's foreshadowed so well in that little interview that he has with the manager. It's like, "Mm, you don't really, I feel like you kind of don't give a shit about them if you're this, like, cavalier of what you think their feelings will be. Yeah, well, and another thing that sort of supports what you were saying about Wendy being neglectful is in that um, scene with the child psychologist. Actually, it might have been right after, but when Wendy's talking to Danny about how they're going to move up to this hotel and she's like you know how do you feel about that and he's like well i guess it's okay there's no one to play with around here anyways Mm. and like that's his comment and it's like okay so he's already feeling isolated from other kids yeah yeah i didn't catch that that's good yeah so we're going to move i mean that's a bad thing for any kid at that age like you don't even have to think about it but it's it's interesting to me that those are the words that danny Mm, says yeah but yeah i agree jack doesn't he 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 doesn't seem to be taking them into consideration at all and it's like 
I don't know the right word in psychology. Maybe it's suppressing. But he's like, it seems like Jack's working a lot harder than Wendy is to ignore reality. Yeah. Right? Like Wendy, I think her motives are better. Obviously, her motivations and her intentions are way better. She's self-deceiving and being negligent out of a desire to try and make things work, how to try to have a happy family. Yeah. Jack is suppressing his annoyance with the existence of his family so that he can keep up appearances. To me, that's a much lower motive, <laughs> whether or not like the harm it, it goes. Like he's just, he's so more obviously selfish and discontented with the world and more willing to drag other people through his own personal hell with him. Mm-hmm. Wendy's sacrifices are like, if I do this, it will be okay. Where it's like, Jack is more like, if I do this, she'll leave me alone. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And like, that's very different. Uh-huh. So like that, I think that's a, that's part of the more of the villainy of Jack than, than Wendy in the totality of the story. Yeah. Well, I noticed watching it, this was something that really stood out to me, is all of the major tense scenes between Jack and Wendy, which are the major scenes of sort of tension and conflict in the movie, Mm -hmm. the things that they're actually arguing about or discussing about are very common. Mundane almost. Mundane domestic issues Mm. that many couples will have had. Like the big one when Wendy's chucking around the baseball bat is it's basically Jack. He's talking about his sort of professional responsibilities He's concerned about his his responsibilities in terms of his employment. And Wendy is concerned about sort of familial stuff with their son. Mm -hmm. And he's not doing well. And it would be better for him to get out of here. And so anyways, those are tensions that exist within real families. Totally. But Jack is not even saying like... I need to, you know, earn money to support our family. It's it is completely leave me alone. Yeah, le- yeah, exactly. So definitely he's a much more self-centered person, but I think that in a lot of ways in terms of traditional male female roles within the family structure, that is more what we expect of men, or especially in the 70s and early 80s. Totally. And and it's this is <laughs> understating it to the nth degree but he does not see wendy as his equal no he doesn't see her as an equal partner in the institution of their marriage and of their family he sees her as a person he can dominate so that his will can be had if he needs it to be i think the evidence for this is that at no point like wendy is at least sometimes trying to give options of different things that they could do to try and improve a situation and Jack shuts down every option as Wendy being kind of stupid and naive. Now, granted, sometimes I feel like Wendy is a little stupid and naive, (laughs) but Jack is doing it. I got the impression that there's nothing Wendy could say that Jack would accept. So it's not that it's not that she just didn't pick the right things. It's that her presence in his life as a category, he's not going to listen to anything you say because he actually kind of despises you. He despises her, I guess, because he's, I don't know, he's so selfish and wrapped up in some sort of idea of him being better than he is 
and not really wanting to like put the effort in to do that, but to just be that way. I don't know. It's like it's like a PSA warning about discontent almost like how discontent can pathologize itself into violence and insanity. Yeah. And and self grandiosity at mm-hmm. the expense of other human beings that you're not treating as equal and thus are abusing them. Yeah, well it's interesting too the fact that when Jack is talking to the Lloyd? Lloyd. The yeah. bartender? Or no, no, it's not Lloyd. It's the guy Oh Grady. Grady, yeah, who is the guy who, you know, chopped up his family <laughs> well, once upon of. a time, sort of. <laughs> and basically Grady is saying that this is another sort of kind of a domestic issue is he's saying that your son has brought in an outside party you're bringing someone into his his domain right Mm -hmm. where jack's the master of the house and not only is it another person but it's a black man and then they throw in the Mm -hmm. racial slur yeah so so that that's definitely a motif of jack kind of looking down on anyone around him Mm. who is not like a white man, I guess. Well, there's even the line, the white man's burden. That's true. Which was like a, I think a late 19th century colonialist sort of ethos for a lot of the, uh, especially the British colonialists about like all of these people who we've colonized are so inferior to us and they're so childish that we just have to take care of them. And that's the white man's burden, right? Right. And so like a lot of that, prejudice in history it's actually really well articulated in uh, the adventures of huckleberry finn as well because huck's dad is a, a deadbeat drunk but at least to him he's still better than all the black people around right mm-hmm. so he still has that sort of angry bit of uh, superiority he can depend on and jack being what seems to be a not very prolific writer and Maybe life has passed him by in some sort of success sense. Rather than looking that square in the face and trying to improve, is taking it out on other people. Right. And he's so cruel to other people while he's doing it. He's so cruel to Wendy in this movie. It's like hard to watch. It is. It's brutal. It's interesting because watching Jack, like as a dad, Hmm. I can say... Something that I didn't I didn't really realize going into it. But, you know, you hear, like, when you're in the hospital about how they, they tell you, like, they give you, like, a pamphlet about shaking your baby or whatnot. And you hear mm. these stories about how everyone used to belt their kids and stuff like that. It seems hard to believe, but then your children and your family definitely push your buttons. This is speaking for mothers and dads and children, mm. I'm sure, as well, where... I think any any dad could, in a moment of honesty, tell you that there's times when they want to hit their kids, mm. but you don't, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't you don't really want to do it, but there is like that. It that's why it's good that we've been educated in society <laughs> to not do that, right? Because it's very harmful to my the... um, brevity. Definition of civilization is not hitting someone when you want to. Exactly, exactly. But the the impulse to do it can be there Mm. but what what i mentioned with um danny being really well behaved (laughs) i don't think that that's actually coincidental i think that he's not in a family where he feels comfortable 
to push people's buttons or or to misbehave. He's scared. He's scared because that's one of the signs. Like, for instance, my son, when he is at school, he's a very well-behaved kid, like extremely respectful. When he's at home, he can be a major jerk to, to me and his mom. <laughs> and that's the way that it should be. Yeah. You know, I had a stepdad growing up who came in when I was about nine. There was never anything abusive, but it wasn't... He didn't have kids. He wasn't comfortable around kids. It was Mm. kind of a weird dynamic and a weird family situation we had for for a long time there where me and my brother didn't really feel comfortable to Mm. make scenes, to be kids, to be... So I know that feeling in any ways. That's definitely what I see from Danny here is that he is... um, yeah, he's not in a totally safe psychological place. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, and I think so that actually is in slipstream with the next point I was going to make. So thank you for anticipating me. <laughs> when Wendy is talking to the child psychologist and explaining what had happened, the incident was Jack had been drunk. Danny had done something, I guess, to, you know, quote unquote, provoke him. But obviously, that's like Jack's problem because Danny's a child, Jack grabs his arm and he grabs it out of anger to like, and shakes him. I think that's what she said. Like, he doesn't hit Danny, but he shakes him and, and hurts him and hurts his arm because of that, right? Like He tries he, to pull him away. Right, from, yeah. right, pulls him away. So, and, and then I think she meant that some sort of minor injury to Danny's arm happened because of that. Dislocated shoulder. Yeah, so not so minor injury. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's, it been about, it's been about three weeks since I've seen the movie. Oh, yeah. So some of those details are a little hazy. But that's like a literal thing that happens in a movie that I think is a very powerful metaphor, which is like some things that we might think can be very minor that we do in anger can be extremely deleterious to children. Mm. Um, like our anger can hurt them so much bigger than we think it does. I don't have any children, but I've worked with kids for like over 10 years and I've worked in after school programs for like five and a half years. And one of the things that I really notice and have really made sure to make it a priority is if I'm feeling anger towards the behavior of a child to pay extra attention to how I react when I'm actually angry. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I've actually I've noticed I usually talk to kids less if if they've done something that's made me very angry. I consciously give myself some time to calm down a bit myself before I talk to them, because I have lived long enough to know that you can accidentally hurt people out of anger when you don't mean to. And you can doubly do that to children. And so when I when I do end up talking to the kids, I've calmed down a moment and I focus much more on the behavior, not them. It's super easy to accidentally say something in a way that makes the kid feel that it's like something of their nature or their essence versus something they've just done in that moment. That's one example. Yeah. And I thought the movie paints that picture so metaphorically brilliantly. For all intents and purposes, Jack did not intend to hurt Danny. I don't think he wanted to dislocate his shoulder, but he did something out of anger that really hurts Danny. And that psychological scar is going to be there forever now, even after the shoulder mends. And I thought it was a really powerful message of warning adults, beware what you do in anger, because the nails can go in much deeper than you think. Yeah. Maybe I'll ask it more broadly about the movie. Like, what do you glean out of Jack's anger in this movie? Not just his selfishness, but his the way he, like, says things. He's blaming when, you know, she'll never let me live it down. She'll always remind me. Like, it's her fault. Yeah. It's it's her fault that he grabbed Danny's arm. 
that kind of thing. Right. So what's your take on his anger in this? Well, I will say about that comment, in completely different circumstances, I understand what he's saying there, where Mm. when you're in a long-term relationship with somebody, and especially with parenting, sometimes it feels like you are already defined by everything that has come Mm. before. Interesting. Yeah, and so it can be hard to... Yeah, you're going to have insights more on marriage than I... Way more than I did picked up in this movie. Oh, it's harder than parenting. <laughs> that's that's my my main takeaway. Right. Um, but yeah, it, sometimes it's hard to put aside the past when you have been hmm. married to someone for quite some time. Okay. And to, to just... So I get what he's coming from there. And I think that he's saying that because when Danny shows up with bruises all over his neck, it's assumed mm-hmm. that he did it right which which he didn't oh man i can tell you like i have to fight real hard to not jump to a conclusions or assumptions when something goes wrong at work mm. there'll be like two or three kids around me be like did you do this versus like that's not fair yeah right? i have no evidence i'm just assuming because of reputation or something like that and that's not justice it comes up in our house all the time because I have a child who's almost three and a child who's almost eight. So they'll be downstairs together and Riley, my son, he will make Violet cry a lot, Mm. you know, and she does plenty to him too. But it's like they're downstairs and then you hear crying and it's like, Riley, what did you do? You know, Mm. when you're not even aware of what's happened. So he feels unjustly sort of accused there, which I... Again, I th- these are little things where I kind of have a, a moment of empathy with Jack. Mm-hmm. But he also really, it doesn't appear to me that he has done any work to really make amends with mm-hmm. the members of his family about what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, he stopped drinking, but I don't think that he ever really has sat down with Danny and said, hey, I'm so sorry about what happened. I did not mean for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And I really... I really hurt you. Yeah, there's nothing resembling an apology, it feels like, in this movie. No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, the deeper that you get into the film, his anger, even though it's still sort of tied to sometimes these domestic disagreements, it seems to kind of take on a life of its own Mm -hmm. and seem sort of, I guess, less applicable to... Real, like real life yeah. real life and yeah, my, sure, yeah. my experiences of being married and having kids you know mm, yeah I definitely hear what you're saying with like Jack's feeling unjustly maligned so if bruises on Danny's neck then Jack did it right like yeah. if then now leaving aside the fact that there is actually nobody else in this hotel and it's a little bit of a stretch to just assume ghosts so in that context, Jack would be a prime suspect to Wendy. But nevertheless, I still would make a note of the broader context, as you're saying, he's not making amends. I would say, how did it get to here, Jack? Hmm. How is it that it's not unreasonable for Wendy to assume this? Whether or not it's fair, it's still not irrational. She has this assumption based on things you have done in the past. Right. So... Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm committed to the idea of not letting Jack get away with anything in this movie. <laughs> sure. Well, I think one other aspect of his anger, too, that is we we haven't really touched on, but this is an interesting viewed from the angle of, like, recovery. Mm. 
you know, when you work with people who have addictions, you know, it's a cliche, but it's true. You can remove the substance mm -hmm. if you're not going to do other work on why that was be why that's being used. You're going to be still left with a bunch of issues and the person will probably end up going back to it, which is clearly what Jack would have done if there mm. was actually real liquor around, not just supernatural ghost liquor, I guess, is what he has <laughs> access to. But he seems so miserable from day one um, in this film. Mm -hmm. And then it does seem to me that the first scene where we see Jack enjoying himself is when he is at the bar having a ghost drink a ghost drink yeah exactly you're right he doesn't seem like he wants a wife no he doesn't seem like he wants a child and in that sense i guess part of the horror to go back to the human horror is like stephen king noting that there are just <laughs> especially men but people who are unfit to become parents do it anyway mm -hmm. and maybe because they just aren't in some important sense in control of their life they're just not grabbing the bull by the horns of their own existence and just kind of letting shit happen to them. Yeah. And then event like they would wake up and they're 45 and be like, how did this happen? So a previous episode we've done on this podcast, we did uh, American Beauty. And I titled that one after talking about it, I titled it Inattention Unto Death. <laughs> and I think that is such a great epitaph for so many uh, modern tragedies in film, but like in again mirrored into real life is like not paying attention to every day of your life and then waking up one day and being like wow fuck i'm so unhappy or i hate this or why did this happen is like well but that assumes you're merely a passenger in your own existence yeah and i think jack has lived a passenger life for so long become discontented that it didn't get him where he wanted and blames others and like that's that's not uncommon. Yeah, yeah. In much of the world. For sure. And especially the western world with middle-aged men, I think. Yeah. For a lot of ways. So, anything else about Jack? I have a couple things, but they're short. I I think that, that that's most of what Well, the, the last thing that I'll say about Jack, although this applies to Wendy as well, just that I noticed at the beginning is the the smile is always a little too big. <laughs> you know like so it's fake it's a bit faked you yeah, know there, yeah, there's yeah. just it's, it's a persona it's a little too much yeah that that was my last yeah 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 and, and and that augments the points of like him if you don't have that kind of like sincere wellspring within you you have to but you have to project it mm -hmm. because there is still the hotel manager there is still the like acquaintance type of relationship you have in the world and if you become an unhinged to those people you're just going to lose opportunities yeah and so he still has to fake it i've always hated that expression fake it till you make it it's like what are you trying to make if it <laughs> causes you to have to fake like what is your goal what goal is worthy pretending for something mm -hmm. you know but i think i'm hard-nosed on that kind of shit so <laughs> So the last thing I wanted to just kind of note, something that struck me is like Jack's murder of Dick is so brutal. Like it's probably the most brutal part of the film. He was so angry. And, and I think metaphorically, I interpreted that as Jack being like the ugly and controlling person would rather destroy the person who wants to broaden the world versus argue with them 
or debate them or negotiate even. Jack's internal poison is at such a level it's made manifest in the movie by a murder, but symbolically I see it as the ugly and the controlling just destroying the creative and the broad-minded as opposed to actually dealing with their thoughts. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I think that that's very much how it functions in the movie. It's very interesting the way that that works. What is his name again, that guy? Dick. Yeah, Dick. Dick, Okay. Dick Halloran, I think is his last name. So, Dick, we meet- I love his pad in Miami, by the way. Oh, I know, right? Those Afro chicks. (laughs) I totally forgot about that part of the movie. It's so so weird, and it's so kind of out. It's so different from anything you see in the rest. But So, we meet Dick in the beginning, and then the rest of the movie, we're following- you know, the family at the Overlook. But we're always cutting back to Dick. And Dick is kind of keeping, he, he's like psychically, you know, keeping his feelers out there. And then we follow him on his whole journey up to the Overlook. And then he gets there. And before he says a single word to anybody, he is just axed off. Mm-hmm. We as the audience are definitely like, this is hope, this is opportunity, this is, you know, the mother and the son can get out of here alive. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like, bam, cut down mm-hmm. in, in the middle of the hallway. And so. and Dick is the only character in the movie that has seemed to actually pay attention to Danny. Totally. Before he's in danger. Yeah. So again, symbolically, Dick represents more like the educator Mm. or the mentor or the person who expands your horizons because they actually think you're worth paying attention to. You're worth investing in. And Jack, from a really fucked up point of view, rightly sees that as a threat to him. Sure. For Danny. So I think that's why it's like symbolically appropriate that he, rather than anything, just wants to kill him. Right. One thing about Dick, his interaction with Danny, which is a great scene. Mm. But it's interesting because Danny learns a lot from him in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. But then Dick really doesn't inform Danny of some pretty serious stuff. Yeah. Like he never comes out and just says like, because Dick basically says, you know, there's a lot of history in this place. There's a lot of stuff that's, <laughs> that's gone down sure, here, eh? and not all of it's good. And it's like, well, from what we can see, what was the good stuff? Like, you know, Danny... And, and the thing that wasn't all good was actually, like, horrific homicides. Yeah, exactly. And then when Danny is like, what's in room 237? Clearly he has, he has knowledge of room 237 from his Shining episodes. And then Dick tries to like do basically a dad like a jack dad move and it's just like nothing don't go there yeah, don't it becomes quite curt yeah and it's like well you know he's a kid you should know better mm-hmm. than than this like everything else that i'm seeing from this guy would make me think that he would know better than to try to handle that question in that way totally um So, yeah, I just found that interesting. I'm really glad you brought that scene up because (laughs) I made a note on it, too. And I I interpreted that. I mean, so much of this podcast is me reading into shit what I want to read into it. So sure, here it goes. (laughs) I interpreted that as even the people who want to expand your mind often themselves have limits. I guess I liked it in the movie because it doesn't paint Dick necessarily as like an all-encompassing hero. He's not going to just come and save the day because even he has limitations. And you've probably noticed there are some topics in life that people just avoid. They just don't want to talk about. It's 
too hard to talk about, or there's just too much pressure going in the other direction. One of the things Dave and I have talked a lot about is that it's interesting to me to note how on social media and the internet, how much energy goes into historically relatively minor minor things going on in Canada, and it just kind of across the board silence about the Uyghurs in China. You know, mm. like an entire mi- religious minority being put in concentration camps and allegedly sterilized. That's pretty bad. Yeah. And it's happening in 2022. But that's harder. It's harder to talk about true human evil as opposed to um, some problematic comment on Twitter. That's easier to talk about. Yeah, sure. So, but people got limitations based on all sorts of things. Never mind financial incentives. I think it's the line Upton Sinclair says, uh, it's really hard to get a man to see a point if uh, his wallet depends on him not seeing it. <laughs> right, yeah. That kind of thing. And I think symbolically, it's like George Orwell said about himself, the thing he thought he had a skill of that other writers didn't, and thus maybe why people liked him in his writing was that he had the power to pl- face unpleasant facts. And... In this moment in the movie, Dick doesn't have the power to face the unpleasant fact of 237, right? Mm. Even though, obviously, if he did, it would have been way better for Danny. Yeah. And I think that's the takeaway, is that, (laughs) I mean, it's hard to say because Danny's so young, but I think a lot of Danny's suffering in this movie could have been at least potentially alleviated if he had more knowledge about what had happened in room 237 so that when he sees the visages of the Grady sisters, he's not just like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Yeah. Right? Like he'd have a little bit of information. Right. And and Dick didn't want to talk about that because it's obviously harder to talk about that. It's hard to talk about things like murder, especially to children. Yeah. It's hard to talk about adult-themed things. And I think... A big malaise of modern life is sloughing off hard topics because they're hard, and yet sometimes they can bite you in the ass if you don't. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's Jack's whole life, is sloughing off hard things. Well, Dick could have saved himself a whole trip to Colorado. I mean, plane tickets aren't cheap, right? So. So I think that that's what the movie was trying to do. Yeah. Was show that even... Our heroes have limitations, mm-hmm. and thus we shouldn't even we shouldn't lionize even Dick. Although, I know some people lionize <laughs> Dick, but that's a different conversation. That's another hard topic. Oh, jeez. Well, <laughs> so yeah, I I definitely saw that, but it was a weird turn, wasn't it? Like if I was watching The Shining for the first time, I'd be like, what? That felt very like studio e. Mm. in the films like oh this is just adding tension the way that he just shuts him down well he's like, so like open and excited uh, to yeah talk to danny danny asks this one question about this one where he was like we're not talking about that goodbye yeah i know <laughs> and it, it almost felt like um if we hadn't already got the explanation of what happened there mm. it would have it would have been a moment of like oh wow like this must be really bad if if he won't even bring it up. Mm-hmm. But we've already had the full explanation. So, you know, we know <laughs> what happened. Yeah. And like if Danny is able to if he is shining information about room two thirty seven, he either already has some info about what happened there or he soon will. Mm-hmm. So trying to shut him down like that, it's not gonna work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Um, 
So it, it does actually make it kind of funny. Yeah. When totally. you think about it in that light. Part of me is like, mm, I wonder what happened with Danny in 237. Like, <laughs> like that's a scene, like a, a deleted scene when that doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that I'd, that I'd love to. Uh... Well, especially because we see some pretty bizarre things that Jack happens to Jack in that room. Oh, man. That, that for me, that to me is just an amazing sequence where Dick is in his room surrounded by his naked Afro chicks mm-hmm. watching the news. And then he starts shining and you see his eyes go. And then we cut to this scene where it's just the camera and it's kind of floating like a steady cam in mm-hmm. this room. And we're seeing the carpet. And then at some point we become aware that Jack Nicholson's in there. Mm-hmm. And then he goes into the into the bathroom and that's where we have the scene with the hot chick who becomes the hideous <laughs> burn victim. Yeah. yeah. That filmmaking is just so hypnotic the mm. way that it goes. Absolutely. F- from, from, is this a, a, like, is this something that Dick is seeing in his vision? And it goes back and forth a number of times from that sort of filmmaking. That's just so, so dreamlike mm-hmm. and hypnotic. And then we're back in sort of a comfortable scene. And then, and then we're getting lulled back into something like that. So those, to me, are the real terrifying moments. And I'm sure this has occurred to you, but you being a David Lynch fan, it's so easy for me to see how this movie influenced Twin Peaks. Because, oh, yeah. because there are so many scenes. Like, if I didn't know that The Shining had come first, I would have thought The Shining ripped off Twin Peaks. Or, like, it was the other way around. Because mm. Twin Peaks is so famous for these kind of shots of these, like, unnerving, in a weird room everything seems right but something's definitely off kind of thing that scene with that scene in the room 2 to 37 and the scene with grady in the bathroom i guess and a couple of the other like delusion type scenes i'm just like did david lynch direct these (laughs) scenes because this is so twin peaks yeah i loved it i I, like aesthetically there's some of the most pleasing scenes ever in cinema Mm -hmm. let alone this movie well i think too even just just talking about like the carpets those kind of sort of hypnotic designs on the carpets and then you think about twin peaks and those kind of like zigzag black and white patterns that you see on the floors Mm -hmm. and and the curtains and stuff like well you can tell this movie really influenced david lynch oh yeah definitely and i love that i love picking out the things in culture that influenced other artists yeah. When you come across it. For sure. That scene, too, in the bathroom, the way that the the music is just, like, muffled in the mm-hmm. background, this kind of, like, it's it's sort of beautiful, but, like, this haunting music, which, which comes back at the end when we see the portrait. I believe it's the same song. Mm. Just the way that the dialogue is written in that scene is very, very unnerving. And I think that one of the things that I just find chilling about it is I find myself thinking, like, Jack Nicholson right now is just, like, alone mm-hmm. in this room in the middle of this creepy <laughs> this creepy hotel. I love that, that we never get pulled out of his delusions, though, mm-hmm. and see that, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we still see all the people he's seeing. Or, like, again, with the Kubrick mystery, like, maybe it's actually happening. Yeah. And there's some sort of magic thing happening here that's really more destructive to Jack uh, externally than we think. But I think the movie's better if that's like not answered, which it's not. Yeah. But yeah, that scene in the bathroom, I think is really important because it kind of resolves uh, some of the kind of like premises around. So Grady 
does an awesome job in that scene of undermining Jack's masculinity, right? Who calls the shots here? Yeah. Are you in charge? <laughs> and in my opinion, terms, internet terms like toxic masculinity and fragile masculinity are thrown around willy-nilly and kind of lose meaning when they're used so broadly. But this is a great example of the philosophically robust version of fragile masculinity. Grady basically draws a chalk outline on the ground for Jack to go lie down in. In terms of like how to make him behave, right? Kind of yeah. like what Russian bots do to American partisans. Oh, <laughs> burn! And, yeah, burn. <laughs> um, and I, I get it. Like I feel this sometimes. I'm, I'm no alpha, but sometimes at, at work, a kid will like make fun of my receding hairline. Oh, uh. and I'm like, in my mind, I'm like fuck you, bitch, <laughs> right? Like, I just want to lash out and, like, demean them. Uh, my first impulse is, like, I want to react to demean that person. I Okay, okay, we're throwing knives? Okay, <laughs> like, I can do this better than you can. So it's, like, that second order, nope, they're a child. And even if they were an adult, it wouldn't be appropriate either because it actually says more about them than me, that kind of thing. It's, yeah. like, personal comments or something undermining of your identity let's say or your in jack's case masculinity that is quite fragile like i get the impulse to react negatively and to like i'll show you mm-hmm. kind of attitude i guess the difference being jack can't see that right like he has to fall into that trap yes and if we're going to take sort of a a psychological approach that all of this is like coming from from jack's subconscious then that is sort of his subconscious giving him permission mm. to murder his son and his wife by mm-hmm. challenging him in that way. Yeah, it's you know? their fault anyway. Yeah, exactly. They made you do this. Yeah, it's necessary for him to prove himself in some way now because you get the impression that, well, no, I mean, you know this is already something he's seriously thinking of doing. But that challenge to his masculinity is just that nudge that he needs mm-hmm. in order to go from thinking about it to actually picking up the axe and and swinging. Very few of the atrocities done in history are done purely by someone who says, I just want to hurt that person. Right. It's almost always, they did something to me first. Uh-huh. And the inability to calibrate the proportionality is often the problem. Right. Yeah. Once we get into the full chasing around people with an axe, <laughs> yeah. um, I, th- this just really goes back to what we we're what where I was thinking watching it with how thoroughly the sort of domestic space is explored throughout this. Hmm. the The line that I really love that comes before "Here's Johnny" yeah. is he slams through the door with that axe, and then he puts his face in and he says, "Honey, I'm home." <laughs> Yeah, yeah, like some sort of demented 50s sitcom. Exactly, right? Like the man's home from work. But this time he's bringing an axe and he's slamming it through the door. I mean, And even still in 1980, that kind of line would have resonated with an audience probably differently than it even does now. Totally. Because there still would have been an entire generation of people who got it from the media they would have consumed over the last 20 years. Yeah, exactly. It is, it's so domestic. Like the man coming home from work, that line, the way that it evokes like 50s sitcoms that are all about the family and stuff. I've taken shit from the world, so I'm here to give you shit. Totally. So you can go, let it go on Danny if you want. I'm like, this is just a genius line in terms of just 
all of the things that this movie has explored. I was so much more impressed with it than Here's Johnny, which again, who's Johnny? I don't know. Like, where's this name Johnny coming from? Well, I don't, it could be, I'm trying to, I I don't know the timeline for sure, but I mean, it could be a reference to like Johnny Carson. Yeah. Like the, that, the late show. It could, I don't know. It said something on Wikipedia, but I don't remember. Oh, okay. So I think there is some sort of reference that Jack Nicholson was making in that scene. Yeah. But it's not even the line. It's just that he, like, his face pressed up against the door, too. Yeah. Right? Like, it's the entire totality of the moment that makes it so iconic. Because the line itself is kind of nonsensical in the narrative. Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah. No, I understand that. Yeah. Okay, so the thing about Danny that I mentioned right off the top, that asking you the, the question about the maze, is um, I was struck by the reference to Theseus. So quick review of our Greek myth. Theseus is one of the, he's the alleged founder of Athens. And he was a son of, like his mother was a human and his father, I think was Zeus, maybe Poseidon. I can't remember exactly. But anyway, his father is one of the gods of Olympus and his mother was a human. So he was a demigod, uh, I believe. This is from memory, not from... (laughs) Uh, reading it right in front of me sure his big story was he was the guy that fought the minotaur in the maze and the reason he was able to find his way into the maze and find and fight the minotaur and then come back out is that the princess ariadne gave him her magic thread so he could follow the thread back after he had defeated the monster so it's going deep into the maze to fight the monster and having a trick to figure out your way back. So there's like an element of the, you can sense a little bit of the low key in there, mm-hmm. the little bit of not trickster, but mischief, like kind of aligning the rules a little bit because the rules of the labyrinth is memorization. But for him, it's just, well, I'll bring a thread, right? right, right. Like subverting the subverting expectations to get your way, which shows a creativity. Mm-hmm. And I really loved that, attributing that motif to Danny because Danny would be lost in there were it not for his own footprints, right? He's able to follow the footprints back out. That's how he gets out, and he won't get caught by his dad. Yeah. Now, in a more logical universe, his dad could easily follow the footprints too. <laughs> to right, get right. Back out. But he messes it up because of his anger. Yeah. And I think the chaos of Jack in that scene really well represents also the Minotaur from the Greek myth, who's anger and rage and chaos, right? He's stronger than Theseus, but he's not smarter than Theseus. And Theseus, again, going on to be the founder of Athens, which is like the cradle of democracy and whatever, right? Like he's the hero of that. I loved that connection to Danny as this, the person who can overcome his travails through creativity and quick thinking to build something better, which... Mm. I haven't seen Dr. Sleep, so I don't know <laughs> where Danny's trajectory goes, but I'm still willing to attribute it, that to The Shining. of like the younger better defeating the older worser through ingenuity. Right. Well, just based on what, you're, what you've told me there, it sounds like that's definitely intentional, mm. that, that reference. I mean, I'd be, I would certainly believe that. I've always felt like... Oh, and and it is interesting to note that Jack does, he starts basically grunting like an animal (laughs) towards the end, which is a great part of his performance, I think. Mm -hmm. I've always felt like the maze, like there must be something really symbolic about it because I don't feel like it's a really satisfying end. 
mm. to sort of the mounting tension of the story. Okay. I mean, I I do I think it's an it's an interesting end. Mm-hmm. I just don't find it very super dramatic. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. I mean, I hope I'm not upsetting anyone by saying that, but Oh, well. <laughs> don't worry about that. Okay. <laughs> I have said well, that's like my job description on this okay. podcast. Yeah, yeah, it just feels a little bit like, oh, okay, this is where we're going. I mean, part of me just wants to see Jack die violently, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But that is a big part of The Shining in general that's interesting is it is <laughs> one of the most bloodless horror films for well i mean there is literally an elevator shaft full of blood mm-hmm. but and then inter- and dick's murder yeah well dick's murder is the is yeah. it yeah i mean there's one person there are who's properly type things but exactly yeah. but in terms of what we actually see on screen it's a movie where the real violence and the real trauma takes place in the past mm-hmm. and we only have it we only see sort of flashes of it which i think is always going to be scarier Mm -hmm. than if you're just showing the actual thing itself yeah yeah you're right i forgot even but like jack does get quite brutish oh yeah at the end he's just flailing like a bull yeah like a bull in a hedge maze (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i like that motif because ultimately danny saves himself by being more innovative than Mm -hmm. and jack being his dad you can interpret that as the weight of maybe your culture or your society saying you have to do it this way and finding a way around it. Right. right? Yeah. Um, so much of innovation is offensive to the status quo because you mm. obviously haven't done it that way. So if you do it a different way, you're kind of Theseus showed everyone else who tried the labyrinth, the thing they didn't try. Right. Danny shows like well, jack dies so he doesn't see it but again symbolically danny shows the jack types the way to get out of the labyrinth that he didn't try which means it didn't occur to him which means he's maybe less creative than danny which means maybe he should actually have to listen to the person he's dominating and that's yeah. like very that can be quite uncomfortable for people who are benefiting from the status quo I don't know. I mean, I think I'm not sure that I'd say Jack is less creative. I thought his writing was quite remarkable that we saw, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, uh, All work and no play makes Jack a dull minotaur. (laughs) Yeah. Well, did you see how many ways he thought to format that? It's quite. (laughs) This is a point my friend Billy made when we talked about The Shining in um, Nothing to Fear, but it's worth reiterating. It's like that was somebody's job. I know. Like that was somebody who worked on The Shining's job to print out and type out all of those different ways to write all work and no play makes jack a dull yeah play. and i was like blown away at how impressive it was oh yeah no that was printed out by hand but by the way this is stealing someone else's point again that was on like a special feature but mm. that has to be one of the great i mean we already know that jack is going nuts but in terms of like here you have the like the physical evidence that mm-hmm. someone has lost their mind. Yeah. That has to be one of the greatest reveals of that kind, right? It's just, it's so simple, but it, it's so perfect. Mm-hmm. And again, everybody knows that phrase, right? Every Even if you haven't seen The Shining, <laughs> you, you kind of know about yeah, that. Yeah. So The final point I'd want to make on that too, to make it resolved again with this story of Theseus is that Theseus couldn't have done it without Ariadne. Ariadne is the princess that gave him the thread and and helped him with the idea of the thread. 
And I liken Ariadne to Wendy in the movie because even though she'd let Danny down a lot in the most important moment, in the redemptive moment, she does help him escape. And she does help him get to the point where he needs to get to to get away. So even though it's not exactly the same, it's not like Theseus didn't do it all on his own. And Danny didn't do it all on his own, right? Like we could probably say Ariadne's character is a combination of Wendy and Dick in this in this movie, and uh, I think that's important to point out that Wendy, in my opinion, Wendy is more or less redeemed in the sense that she saves helps save Danny, right? In that moment, because like if Danny doesn't get out that window in the bathroom, maybe a cut on the hand of Jack won't be enough to stop him. Yeah, murdering them. Plus, Danny being out of the room is what actually saves uh, Wendy. Too. Well, and that is when Dick shows up. Jack hears the motor of mm. the. So Danny goes into the hedge maze before Dick arrives. No. So what happens is they're in the bathroom. Mm. Danny goes out the window. Jack has just slammed through, and he does his hears Johnny line. Right. And then he hears the motor running from uh... Dick arriving. Then he goes on the off... other side of the hotel. No, I mean, he, they're they're on an upper floor, so he has to go uh, down to a lower floor. Okay. He goes and, you know, acts his dick and then goes straight from there into the maze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. So we're kind of winding down, but uh, obviously we would be remiss to not talk a little bit about the cinematic and film theory slash film execution elements of this. So, I mean, I think mm, there's a few things. The most obvious thing to me are the tracking shots both in the maze and on Danny's roller bike. Yes. Throughout the movie, like those kind of shots gave me a feeling I don't get in most movies mm-hmm. in their cinematic presence. So what are some of the cinematic elements of this film that you just can't help but notice and, and talk about? Oh, there's a number. Yeah. I mean, you have to talk about, you have to talk about those shots and they basically. They invented a kind of camera for yeah, it I read about. I can't remember did. what it's called, but like they, a steady cam kind of thing. Yeah. And they had it basically attached to, to Danny's little bike thing. So it was like a couple inches off the ground. Mm-hmm. I think the sort of atonal score does a lot of yeah. the. Yeah, totally. Heavy lifting in terms Weird of. sounds going on. Oh, yeah. And I mean, a number of times, <laughs> it's it's a weird thing. I'm not even sure how I feel about it. But you're in a scene and you feel that, that, a, that weird like atonal music is building and building and building. And then it's like you're going to go right to like a jump scare because mm. it's like this boom and then it's just a title card and it's like Tuesday. Yeah. And then it's like Wednesday. <laughs> so anyways, that's interesting. But some shots, I mean, the first, the opening shot of where it is a tracking shot from a helicopter following them. So iconic. Dr- oh my God. It's just like. Filmed in Montana. Okay. I noticed. Yeah. Amazing. Just, just amazing to look at it's like he if he's gonna put in because mostly this is a, a movie that's taking place within this hotel mm-hmm. but he's gonna give you a like a wide open expanse and a tracking shot he's gonna give you the best one you can get you mm-hmm. know also that shot from overhead of the labyrinth mm-hmm. where basically jack is looking at a model of of this labyrinth yeah and then you cut to 
it's like, how could you even get a camera that high where you're looking at this labyrinth from so and high it goes above. down, and is that where um, uh, Wendy and Danny are in it? That's right. Right, yeah, okay. And basically, to get that, they actually had to recreate that labyrinth in London. I don't know where, but on the they were shooting that from like a high rise. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was how they had to get that shot. Get that shot. Wow, that's incredible. Behind the scenes thing, most of this movie was actually shot in England. In a in a studio, not, yeah. Not uh, you know, not in Colorado or Oregon. Yeah. Where the actual hotel is that it's based on. Totally. Yeah, I mean there's those things and then there's just there's just the images. There's just certain images that are with us forever now. Mm-hmm. Like the the um elevator shaft and with the blood pouring out of it. You know, you you'll yeah, never how'd they, do that. That? how'd they do that one? That I I couldn't tell. Yeah. Is that like corn syrup? <laughs> Probably. It has to be, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it has to be, unless a lot of animals died. Oh. But <laughs> yeah. Or a lot of Grady sisters. Yeah. Did you notice you've probably noticed this and this has been talked a lot about, but it's like the actresses who play the Grady sisters are are twins, but early in the movie the manager guy says they were eight and ten. Oh. And I was like, Yeah. Those girls are not different ages. <laughs> That is a good point, yeah. And and like there's a big difference between an 8-year-old and a 10-year-old. There is, absolutely, yeah. So I thought that was funny. Yeah. And then I just think, you know, just a general point about Stanley Kubrick. I think that he is the best example in the history of cinema of marrying real true substance to films that are incredibly entertaining from the Mm. first second yeah i mean i can't think there is no other filmmaker who has films that have so much depth and so much rewatchability and yet the second that they go on you're just swept away Mm -hmm. so anytime i watch one of his films i'm struck by that that's for sure he's one of the most interesting stylists for entertainment i think ever yeah I also really noticed watching it this time that there were like the way that they used the fade to black style really helped lend to the idea of like not being exactly sure how much time has passed. And it adds to the dreamy quality of it Mm. because it's like, okay, we've had a fade to black. Does that mean five minutes have passed? Does that mean a day has passed? Does that mean two weeks has passed? It's not, you're not like always sure. Like sometimes the characters mention time, but that's our clue, not like a kind of more continuity film based way of doing it. And I thought that was a really interesting addition Mm. to maybe an attempt at putting the audience in Jack's shoes. Right. A little bit, right? Like, how long has it been? What? We've been here five weeks and I've written nothing? How did that happen? Yeah, I'm actually unclear about the timeline because we do get these dates like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So I'm like, I don't know what period of time this movie takes place over. Mm-hmm. You know, it feels like months and months. Mm-hmm. But then those title cards lead me to think not. Mm-hmm. I would mention, too, this is shot in a now I'm for, forgetting what I think it's eight. 6-8 aspect ratio okay. basically on a full screen TV mm. is going or on a widescreen TV it's going to take up the full screen how most TV shows are shot now Right. whereas Stanley Kubrick for earlier films had mostly worked in a widescreen 
aspect ratio where you'd have bars at the top and the bottom. Mm. And so I think it's interesting because this is a film. He also is really known for like his movies are going to be shot to be looked at on a big screen. Mm. And I think he really achieves that with a movie that takes place all indoors because it's um, you get those like tall kind of shots with the the tall ceilings especially Mm -hmm. in like that big room that jack works in Mm -hmm. those shots like you you feel it feels huge it feels like a big screen experience while still taking place within the walls of this this building so Mm -hmm. that's kind of an accomplishment in itself do you have any thoughts on the aforementioned use of mirrors in this film because i think it's really interesting like even it's noted that when Jack is talking to Grady, he's facing a mirror. There's some really cool shots of like, there's that one scene where Jack's talking to Danny in his bedroom and we're actually seeing Jack through the mirror. Mm. You get a few of those. And then obviously the red rum we see through the mirror to murder. I mean, I think we've maybe talked a little bit about like that kind of reflective nature of the theme of the film, but like what does the mirror element of this make you think about if anything. Yeah, I'll be on it doesn't I didn't notice it a whole ton, but when I do notice that in movies cuz there's quite a few, it never strikes that much of a chord with me. It's Is it like, because it's been so overdone now? Well, it's like if it's in a mirror, it's going to have something to do with a reflection. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's <laughs> I see. It's pretty. (laughs) Some movies, it's like everyone is framed in a doorway or something. Mm -hmm. I'm like, it it look. If it looks good, it looks good. But yeah, I I don't know why. It's never something that I've spent too much time thinking. I think it's almost always thematically to demonstrate that there's like um, some sort of filter or through the looking glass or some sort of um, refractive element to the emotions of the characters we're supposed to get. So like in the movie Midsommar. There's an early scene of, like, Danny, the main character, talking to her boyfriend. And I, I can't remember. One of them's in a mirror. Like uh-huh. We see one of them and we see the other one in a mirror. Even though they're there, we're not seeing the real thing. Like, Yeah. It's, I think it's just as simple as that. Yeah. Maybe at this point that's a, a tired trope, but maybe not so much in 1980. Yeah. As much as it was. And in that scene... Just an additional point I just thought of. I love, like, we don't actually see Grady's face until he becomes menacing, mm. right? And mirrors, mirrors show you what's there, but not exactly the same, right? And I think, if I might say that's mirrored in the way that the guy that the manager tells, says, killed his daughters was Charles Grady, but this guy's name wasn't Charles. I can't remember what it is. It's like a funny name. Yeah. It's no, something I else that. Grady, something right? Else Grady. So it's like, it's the same, but a little different. Yeah. In a way that a mirror reflects things that are there, but like a little differently or like not exactly the same. It serves well as a good motif for Jack's inaccurate view of things. Sure. Let's say, even though it kind of looks the same to him. Mm. Anything else you wanted to touch on? I feel like we can finally say that The Shining (laughs) has been fully exhausted Okay, I'll ask you this. Does does watching this movie make you want to read the book? No. No? Because I, I do, only because I'm curious to know how or if the actual Shining itself is more relevant to the story of the novel. I feel like it must be. 
because there's only like a couple scenes in the movie where shining is the shining is important as communication like i guess we could say danny sees these apparitions because of the shining but like it seems a kind of like background yeah of background importance to well the story as someone who has seen Doctor Sleep, I can tell you it definitely is more important to the to the, the okay. novel. Right. Um, it is a f- the novel is full on supernatural hmm. kind of fair. Yeah. The reason why I say no is because for me, The Shining is all about Stanley Kubrick and not oh, at all about fired. Stephen King. Take that, Stephen um, King. He, you know, Stephen King's okay, but yeah, I'm a Kubrick guy. Yeah, so. totally, totally. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I'll read it eventually. Yeah. It's not a priority, but I'm curious. Sure. Because of this. I like movies that can get you talking about them. And The Shining can certainly do that, even though I would analyze it by saying, I don't think it really, I don't think it's aged well as a horror movie Mm. for me personally, but I think it's aged really well as a, character study in the dissolution of a cycle of a psychology because of not grabbing the bulls by the horn of your own life Mm, yeah and and how that inattention can really negatively affect in the movie danny but the innocent or the child the children around you right right like how it's not just you everything jack does and says also majorly impacts this you know, seven-year-old boy around. We got to be aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, for me, it definitely does hold up as a horror movie. I, Mm. like I said, I find it to be the scariest movie and I don't, yeah, for me, it is my, it's the movie that has scared me more than any other one. And I don't know what that is about me because Mm. I know I've heard a number of people say that it doesn't for them, but in terms of movie, for me, if a horror movie is scary, it scares me after I've watched it, and not oh, yeah. too many people, not too many of them do. And truly this is, horrifying, yeah, versus exactly, like, scary for sure. Yeah, it, yeah, I mean, it's easy to make someone jump at the time of. So, anyways, yeah, this is a one for the ages. So. Totally, yeah, it is. My son's really interested in seeing it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I'm. What would be the age you think it'd be okay to watch it with him? maybe 12 yeah that's a good question what's the first adult movie like not porn but like first (laughs) adult a movie for adults that you remember watching that you were allowed to watch not that you like snuck and watch but like your parents watched with you or said you could uh i remember watching mission impossible when i was quite young Mm. like but when it was like going over my head right that movie has a brutal opening (laughs) Mm. the whole team gets killed off yeah for me it would be saving private ryan Oh, yeah. When I was 12, my dad watched Saving Private Ryan with me because it had come out the previous year. And, uh, yeah, that movie is amazing but quite brutal. Well, right after we record this, I'm going home to show my son Jurassic Park for the first Ah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's sneaky scary for a kid. Yeah, he's almost eight. It's pretty pretty young to see it, but I think he'll be okay. Has he seen Star Wars? He actually didn't like it. Oh, (laughs) jeez. Sorry. Well, it's okay. Yeah. Pobody's nerficked. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I want to say another big thank you, Alex. Um, I'm sure you'll be a guest again on the podcast, but thanks for watching a two and a half hour film 
Although, uh, if anyone knows you, it's actually not that big of a sacrifice for you to do. <laughs> Just another another night. Yeah. People think I watch a lot of movies, and uh, like, so okay, similar to how some people will like comment that, "Hey, Luke, you're like." Well, you can play guitar okay sometimes. My first thought is like, uh, you don't even know the people who are good at guitar. Like, that's just like how my mind immediately goes. It's like, go watch those people on the internet. You'll see people who are good at guitar. Right. So like when someone says to me, hey, Luke, you watch you watch a lot of movies. I think you, uh, you haven't even met Alex. <laughs> right? That's just how I'm like naturally temperamented towards things like that you know so i um, hear you yeah <laughs> because I, you probably even could think of people who are more uh cinematically literate than you even well here's the thing yeah cinematically cinematically literate yes but i feel like if somebody watches more movies than me mm. it's then at the point where it's not something to brag about <laughs> anymore like i'm right on the cusp right you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, cool well Thank you, Alex. Thank you, everyone who listens to this podcast. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. Uh, May the force be with you. (laughs) Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Luke.